Well, this is one of those Gospels where Jesus um, tells it like it is and does not sugarcoat at all what it will cost to be his disciple. In a certain sense, he's saying, think about it. Do you have what it takes to follow me? Just like if somebody were to build a building, build a tower, literally, they would make sure they had the money, they had the materials, they had the labor. And if they couldn't finish it, they wouldn't even start. Or if a king who had 10,000 troops in his army was being advanced upon by a king that had 20,000 troops, are his 10,000 that much better than that guy's 20,000? Does he have the strategic advantage enough? And if he doesn't see any possibility for victory, he says, while he's still far away, he will send a delegation to ask for peace terms. I don't know about you, but I find that analogy that Jesus uses, that metaphor of asking for peace terms, kind of sad. Like, what if I were to see Jesus and he were to invite me to be his disciple? And he said, you have to sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And I looked in my own heart and I said, do, can I do that? And I sent, like, a delegation to him for peace terms. Like, can we do some other arrangement, <laughs> you know, where you can give me advice every once in a while, but I basically have my own life? Um, and we'll check in later. Maybe, maybe I'll be ready. Maybe I'll have more resources to give towards this discipleship thing. But not right now. It's, it's sad. But it's also, I don't know, it's just very intimidating compared to, say, the parables where Jesus talks about the kingdom as this very... Um, abundant and inclusive reality. Say like the prodigal son story, which is in Luke, where this gospel is from today. You couldn't be more uh, generous with, with uh, the prodigal son than what the father does. He runs out to meet him, doesn't ask him to make restitution for everything that he's stolen from the father, um, doesn't uh, expect some grand apology or some grand gesture. He simply receives the son back. And, and same with all of these parables of the, of the father's house, that the, the father's making a banquet for his son's wedding, and he invites everybody from the byroads and the, the, uh, the beggars and the prostitutes, and the, everybody is welcome here. You know, there's no conditions. God's love, his, his mercy is abundant, and it covers a multitude of sins. And yet at the same time, this reality that Jesus is talking about that that's true. It's for everybody, but it will cost you everything. The kingdom is one of these things that you can't come in by half measures. You're either all in or you're all out. And it raises the question, at least in my mind, okay, so Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, this is what you have to do. You have to carry your cross. You have to deny yourself. You have to renounce all your possessions. You have to hate your father and mother, even your own life. Like, it's hyperbole. He's not saying you literally have to hate your mom and dad. He's saying that compared to all of these goods, even the highest loves of your life, I have to be above them all. The question is, why? <laughs> why would I want to give all that up? Um, and maybe it's like fear of hell. Like if you don't have Jesus, then you're going to go to hell. But that's an even weirder proposition that Jesus is making then. He's saying, you have to, do, you have to give me absolutely everything, otherwise I'm going to send you to hell. Like, okay, then why do I want to go to heaven? Why, do I want to, why would I want to live with you forever? I must be missing something. Right? Because that's not the voice of God. That's not what Jesus is really offering me. What makes Jesus so good that I would leave everything to follow him? And the paradox of that is that there is this spiritual reality in front of us, especially whenever Jesus is like, 
literally or sacramentally in front of us in the Eucharist, that I can't see unless I give myself to it. Right? If there is some attachment to myself still there, then I can't really see how good, how true, how beautiful this gift is that's being offered me. Just an example, I, yesterday I went to see the Cezanne exhibit at the Art Institute. This is the last weekend for it. It's been at the Art Institute since May. I've been meaning to go see it. And I went yesterday for, for a little while just by myself. And um, it was crowded. It was good to see that uh, people were out to look at art on a Saturday. Um, and it's just funny when you're standing in front of paintings. And I, I'm not much of an art critic. I don't really know much about art. I like looking at paintings. Um, but you hear the people who do fancy themselves as art critics around you talking to their friends like, oh, this is a very interesting piece, you know, and just uh, very self-consciously, clearly want to be seen as knowledgeable about art, right? And um, here I am also like criticizing them for being so whatever, conceited or, or self-conscious. I'm self-consciously unself-conscious. And so none of us are actually looking at the art, Right. And actually, at one point, there was this young woman with her, I assume, boyfriend who handed him <clears throat> her phone and then stood in front of one of, the, one of the beautiful paintings and just looked at it like this. And then she was like watching him take a picture of her, which I'm sure she was going to post on Instagram, say like, look at this Saturday I spent just appreciating art, right? And really what she's doing is staging a photo to show other people what an art appreciator she is. Right? And then here I am standing next to her being like, wow, such a shallow person, right? I'm the one appreciating the art. Just all of these layers of self-absorption and self-consciousness when the reality that we've all come to see, and we know it in our, in our hearts why crowds come to see uh, pieces of art made by geniuses is, is because there's some beauty there that we want to enter into. We want to see it. But we're so preoccupied with ourselves, how I'm coming off, what am I getting out of this? What is it going to cost me if I really give myself to this, this truth? Um, that we can't enter into it and so we can't see it. You know, the blind Bartimaeus, um, in the Gospel of Mark, he, uh, Jesus calls to him and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Lord, I want to see. That was the prayer that I, <clears throat> that I had yesterday as I was conscious of all this self-consciousness. <clears throat> I just said, Lord, I want to see. If there's some beauty here, for me that you've made. I want to see it. And um, I think that that prayer in its simplicity is effective. Um, the beatitude, blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God. That vision comes from a purity of heart, like a child is unselfconscious. A child just sees beauty or sees wonder and goes after it and plays in it and, and wonders at it. Uh, is not so self-conscious. Or St. Paul in Corinthians says, Eye has not seen, nor ear has heard, nor has it so much as entered the human heart what God has in store for those who love him. That, I think, friends, is getting at what Jesus is offering, why it would be worth it to give everything to follow him. Not that it's a threat, but it is kind of a warning. that There can be this beauty right in front of us, and we can miss it. There can be this truth, this goodness, this purpose, this meaning of my whole life. And I can be so caught up in something unimportant, something trivial about myself, and I can sacrifice the highest good for something lower. And I don't want to do that. So how do I get out of this trap of self-absorption? How do I get out of this meta thing that's going on at the Art Institute? Well, I don't know. It's a mystery. 
It's God's grace. But I've seen it happen. Um, three years ago now, 2019, uh, a friend of mine, Doris, died of cancer. She was 24, and I had gotten to know her a, a year prior when she was first diagnosed. She was from my, my first parish. And she was working in a factory at the time when she was about 23, and um, she just started, her back and joints were really hurting her. And it got to such a point that she actually took an Uber from work to the hospital. And that was the beginning of this whole nightmare of realizing that she had this very rare cancer. And she was here at Rush and um, did all sorts of therapies and radiation, chemotherapy and everything. And she was in remission to more or less better um, after tons and tons of treatment. Um, and she went down to Mexico to give thanks to the Virgin Mary at uh, Guadalupe in Mexico City. And it was there when she was down there in Mexico with her family that she got sick again and the cancer came back and she came back to Chicago. And um, she was here at Rush for a long time and I would, I would go over there. I'd then been moved and assigned here to the Newman Center. So I would go visit her and bring her communion. And she was just an ordinary 23-year-old girl. She's not... Um, particularly uh, religious or particularly saintly or anything like that. She came from a, a normal family. Um, she wanted to, very much to have a boyfriend. <laughs> she had this guy that she was interested in in Mexico. And she just talked about that kind of stuff, wanting to live. She wanted to have a life. But then she had this very scary reality of her mortality, this, this sickness. And... Um, we would just sit and talk for a while, make small talk, and then I'd, I'd give her Jesus in communion, and we'd just kind of sit there. And she always had a smile, even though when she was suffering, even when she was crying because everything about what was going on was so sad to her, she always smiled, and she was always happy to see me, and she always received Jesus very reverently in the Eucharist. And this story, it's a long story, but very sadly, um, she ended up in hospice care, and then she ended up at home. And in the last weeks of her life, um, she called for me to come, and uh, I brought her communion, and she was, like, happy. She had been sort of, like, really losing it, and she was on all these um, sedatives and drugs and stuff, like, for the pain. And she was just very awake and lively, and, and she was singing songs. And I remember she sang in Spanish this one song, I que morir para vivir. It's an old, it's a, a Spanish worship song. You have to die to live. And I remember her singing that very sweetly. And um, a week later, it was the night of our Oktoberfest here, I remember I, I um, went down in the morning because her aunt, who I knew well, called. She said that um, she was dying and she'd called out for me to come. And I brought her Jesus again in the Eucharist. And... Um, she, at that point, was very not present mentally, and it wasn't clear whether she knew what was going on, but she called out for, for, for me and for, um, for Jesus. And um, I gave her communion, and I wasn't really aware if she knew what was going on, but she ate and she swallowed the host, and then she asked for water, which in her delirium she kind of thought was like the chalice at Mass. Um, and she, she thought she was... She, so she received this water just as reverently as she received the host, and then she was just kind of laying there. And maybe a minute or a minute and a half later, her arms started to move. And she was so weak, she hardly could move anything off the bed. And she made, slowly made the sign of the cross. And we were all just sort of in awe. Um, 
and there was this silence in the room and her mother was crying and stayed there for a little bit and then I, I left and came back up here and that night during our party I got the call from her aunt um, Doris passed away and I don't know why I'm even telling you this story but it's one of those things where you see you see the attachment to self go away and it wasn't like she was some spiritual superhuman or, or an extraordinary person by any uh, worldly standards but God worked a miracle in her heart and I believe Doris is in heaven and I pray to her I pray for her um, and somehow this reality was very very present to me and to all of us in that room that what Jesus had to offer her and all of us was so real that there is this spiritual reality which is to say there is reality which is spiritual everything exists because of God and everything in our life that is beautiful and good and true and will endure to eternal life is from him. And only when we give it back to him, only when we give him all the freedom to um, tell us how to use it, <laughs> to tell us how to enjoy it, to, help, to tell us how to live, can those gifts be a blessing to us. And if we are still attached to ourselves, if there's any attachment to us that's blinding us from this reality, let, let's ask the Lord, Lord, we want to see.